Hi guys, and welcome to True Crime Storytime. I am your host, Ivana Estelle. I have to brag a little bit. I am recording from the comfort of my bedroom. I am, I don't even know how I was able to do this. I just was able to like have a home desk and everything set up. So I feel like I'm going to be really relaxed while recording today. First, I just want to say that I was so stoked to do this episode. I literally, in the middle of writing it, I had to like post on my Instagram to say how excited I was for people to hear it because it was just so enjoyable to do. You know, true crime is usually dark and devastating, but this was a case that did not involve any murder. And you know what? I needed a break. I need a little bit of a what the heck, what's going on, explosive type of case to write, but that doesn't actually involve anyone dying. So I really hope that you like this twist, this uh, a little different than what we usually cover here at True Crime Storytime with Ivana Estelle. So welcome, and I really hope you enjoy the show. I feel like to start the story, I need to actually introduce you to Jesse Smollett. There are so many opinions and think pieces surrounding his case. But the thing is, Jesse, if he was a regular guy who did what he did or what he's accused of doing, people would probably only care for like a day. However, it's because of his celebrity, because he's famous that it matters. But the thing is, the type of work that he's in usually is only for a specific demographic. Like, I find it really hard to believe that far-right activists and neo-Nazis were watching Empire. I also honestly find it hard to believe that anyone over the age of 35 was watching Empire. I watched like three episodes and then that was it. I just knew him as the really hot gay character who could sing. But he was famous enough, and he's done a lot, which cannot be discredited, despite this crazy story that I'm about to tell you. See, despite him being this actor and singer covered in controversy, I feel like people heard the basic facts and then drew the wrong conclusions, myself included, which is why I decided to actually research this case and share it with you. I want you to hear the full story and then decide what to believe on the case of Jesse Smollett. Jesse was born on June 21st, 1982. He's known for being an American actor and singer, like I mentioned before, but his roots actually started in Santa Rosa, California. He began acting at the age of nine in films like The Mighty Ducks and North. I've only seen one of those movies. Can you guess which one? Jesse came from a pretty large family. He was a son to Joelle and Janet Smollett, and he has three brothers and two sisters, and all of them start with the letter J. I really want to go on a rant about people who have families with the exact first letter of every single name, but I just know we don't have that much time in this podcast, so I'm going to keep going. Of his siblings, Jake, Jacqui, Jojo, Journey, and Jazz are all actors. 
You probably recognize Journey as being one of the greatest actors of our time. And that's a fact, not an opinion. Okay. Okay. I need to keep the legitimacy of this show, so that is definitely my opinion, but she's pretty famous for being in movies like Rollbound, Temptation, which sucked, Birds of Prey, and shows like Friday Night Lights and Lovecraft Country. The Smollett family were pretty standout. There was a bunch of them, and with an African-American mother and a white Jewish father, they were pretty unique, to say the least. All the siblings kind of look alike, tan skin, curly dark hair, and all of them are very attractive. A lot of them started acting as kids. That must have been pretty difficult. Like, you're working as a team, but also competing for a little bit of attention. When you're not competing within the family, you're competing for roles. Journey ended up being the most successful out of the family by far. During Jesse's childhood, he ended up moving with his entire family to Queens, New York. He was a baby at that time, and eventually moved back to Los Angeles. But then, during high school, the family moved across the country again to Paramus, New Jersey. That's where Jesse attended Paramus Catholic High School. With his career and large family, Jesse kind of spent a lot of his time all over the place. Another strange fact was that his father wasn't in his life for a good portion of it. It isn't clear when he left or for how long, but it did stand out. Growing up with a black mother and an absent white father, it impacted him. But he never really got to like a place of darkness with it. When he was 19, he actually came out as gay. His family was pretty supportive, and Jesse kind of always knew who he was, and he stood on that. As Jesse got older, for a while, he wasn't really acting. His last best-known gig was in 1995, when he actually acted alongside of his five siblings in a short ABC sitcom called On Our Own. However, it was in 2012 when Jesse ended up getting a leading role in an LGBT-themed comedy drama called The Skinny. Also that year, he released his first EP titled Poison Hearts Club. Between 2012 and 2014, he had a bunch of different guest roles on shows, including The Mindy Project and Revenge. But it was in 2014 when things really started to shake for Jesse Smollett. He landed his first huge role as Jamal Lyon in Empire. It was a pretty big deal at the time. The show basically was about the super famous corrupt family in the music industry that was making waves, and Jamal Lyon was the gay middle son who had the most talent and worst relationship with his father. Do we see any glaring similarities here? Jesse was killing the game. He was working alongside Terrence Howard and Taraji Hansen. The show was like an overnight success. It was a huge Fox drama and ended up being on for like six seasons. Most importantly, Jesse's role was kind of groundbreaking. He played an openly gay black man at a time where that was pretty unheard of. Actually, I don't know that many roles that was like normalized. People rooted for Jesse. I mean, Jesse was a serious star. In 2015, about a year following his debut, he confirmed that he had signed with Columbia Records and was beginning to release an album in the future. He even co-wrote a bunch of songs on Empire. I forgot to mention, they're like a musical meets drama. It's a whole thing. Honestly, you can watch if you want. I encourage you just to, like, get a feel for Jesse. I wasn't a big fan. Like I said, after three episodes, I was pretty much out. 
This was kind of like Jesse's year. In 2015, it was announced that he was going to guest star alongside his sister in the movie Underground. He released an album in 2018, and it kind of felt like there was nowhere to go but up. Well, there was until there wasn't. See, when I say actors like Anne Hathaway has the career of a lifetime, or I say that Leonardo DiCaprio has the career of a lifetime, or if I even say singer Olivia Rodrigo is on the rise, it's because they are going to be nationally and universally known. But just like I mentioned earlier, people only know Jesse Smollett from Empire, a show with predominantly Black viewers. A lot of the times, Black actors in Hollywood kind of get put into these boxes. They end up only being on shows that surrounded themselves with scenarios regarding people of color. They're famous in Black Hollywood and maybe moderately known in general Hollywood public eye. And yeah, you make an incredible living. You have a substantial amount of fans and fame. But a lot of these actors who are very talented never get to make it to the peak that they probably deserve because a lot of these directors end up casting them as these stereotypical roles like the Black best friend or a Black police chief or a Black head nurse. That's if they even cast them at all. Someone like Journey, Jesse's sister, was able to kind of break out of that. She had multiple roles, but even then, she kind of has stayed in a specific genre. Justy, despite his groundbreaking role and album, was kind of at risk of becoming stagnant. Like I mentioned, this album, I didn't hear any songs on the radio, did you? Not only that, but he wanted to do more in acting, which includes directing and writing. In fact, he had directed a movie called B-Boy Blues based on the 1994 gay black novel, by James Earl Hardy. The movie was actually released in November of 2021. I don't think I saw a single commercial or promotion around it. So it's interesting that in January, on the 29th, in 2019, Jesse Smollett was walking down the street and would become one of the most notorious names in the country, seemingly overnight. January in Chicago is a cold that most people won't experience in this lifetime. There are biting winds, snow frequently, and icy streets. Just after the holidays, you could expect a beautiful snowfall to now feel like a prickly frozen hell. Most people who live out there will tell you that you need to wear a large, thick jacket, a hood with fur around the rim to protect yourself from the icy air. Chicago is known to have a city that is cleaner than other cities. In the summertime, it is the perfect place that you want to be. The city is known for its high buildings that are usually made of glass, so if you were even on like the 10th floor, you can overlook the entire metropolitan area. It's probably extremely beautiful no matter the season. The city is known for its bars and restaurants, its bustling nature. Writers and creatives flock to the area. It's usually a setting in any crime movie, and it's separated by a train system that seems to stop in any impoverished area. You can tell the segregation from the middle class and lower class. Most violence that happens in the city is usually in more low-income areas, and that's just the long and short of it. That area has been nicknamed Chirac for murders of black men versus black men. But in the city, you've got your normal amount of crime. Robbery here, assault there. But where Jesse lived a place with high-rise condos and large parking areas, a place that if you work in finance or healthcare or if you make a little money in, I don't know, cryptocurrency, you could live pretty decently. 
And the actor was doing well for himself. He made great money off of Empire, and because of that, lived comfortably. Which is probably why, as he walked on the dark, snowy streets, he wasn't worried. See, Jesse had just flown in from a work trip, and he made his way to Chicago where he called his uncle and creative director, who in interviews he made quite an effort to note the distinction, Frank, to come pick him up and take him home. Once they got in, Jesse realized he was hungry. It was getting late. First, he made his way to the local Walgreens, which is like walking distance from the apartment complex. He figured maybe it was 24 hours, like a 7-Eleven, and he could grab a cigarette and some snacks. To his surprise, once he arrived, he realized that the store was closed, so that wasn't going to work. He called Frank and let him know that he was going to head to Subway. He also makes a note that he's going to Subway, yes, but isn't buying a sandwich. He's buying a salad. And look, I know this doesn't seem like a big deal, but it kind of does, because as he tells this story continuously, it seems a little bit image-based. But I'm going to continue. Frank responded that he wasn't hungry and that Jesse should just go ahead and grab the sandwiches and head on home. Jesse began to make his way towards the Subway sandwich shop. While doing so, he whipped his phone out one more time to text his manager, Brandon. He asked if he could call him shortly. They were going to go over a couple work-related stuff while he took the walk to the subway and back. Brandon calls and the two began to chit-chat. It was pretty brief, and that's when he heard someone shouting behind him. It distracted Jesse because he assumed that he was the only one out in the streets. It was late. Also, there's language I'm about to use that I do not condone, but I don't know how to bleep out curses yet, so I'm going to try to keep it as PG as possible. The voice yelled, Empire, which Jesse didn't respond. He had fans, sure, but most of them knew him at least by his first name, and they wouldn't call him out by the name of the show he was on. Then the voice repeated it, Empire. Then the voice yelled another obscene word, F-A-G-G-O-T. And then the voice continued to repeat, Empire, F-A-G-G-O-T. And finally, Empire, N-I-G-G-E-R. Once this figure caught up to Jesse, he turned around and saw a stature of a larger man cocking back and punching Jesse in the face. In shock, Jesse reached back his own hand and swung. The assailant yelled, this is MAGA country. The two began to tussle when another figure was brought in as well and Jesse realized that he was attacked. His feet slipped and slushed against the icy ground as the two men pounded and pushed on Jesse. He tried his best to keep up and defend himself and at one point fell where his phone had fallen out of his pocket. He must have put it in there during the collision. Eventually, the two figures ran away, and he watched them turn left and out of view. He grabbed his phone, which was now cracked, and pressed it against his ear. Brandon, are you there? Brandon frantically asked what was going on. Justy replied that he had just been jumped. He explained that as he began to get his bearings, he felt his chest, and that's when he realized there was a rope. During the attack, 
they must have wrapped it around his neck. Like a noose. In a panic, he made it home where Frank was waiting and called the police. And Jesse said that he wanted to keep the rope around his neck. He'd loosened it and set it against his shoulders and wanted to show police what these people had done. In an interview with Robin Roberts, Jesse explains that he asked the police to turn off their cameras and come inside instead of asking questions in the hallway of the building. He wanted to keep things moderately quiet. He explained what happened and said that the two men were wearing ski masks, which wasn't that surprising because it was freezing cold out. He also realized there was a camera just above the alleyway where the fight was ensued. He thought maybe there would be some sort of footage. In fact, when police went to gather the camera evidence, they didn't find anything. See, it had been facing the north direction, which I'm assuming is opposite of where the attack happened. And thus, there was no actual footage of the fight. However, there was something that was caught on a separate camera. A small image of two figures in all black. Even from the short screenshot, you can tell they are bigger men, and they are probably brolic, and definitely could have overpowered Jesse. Jesse explained that he didn't really get a good look. He couldn't tell you the color of the assailant's eyes, but when he saw the figures in the image, he immediately knew it was them. Jesse went to the hospital to examine his injuries, and it was clear he'd been punched in the face. There was a cut under his right eye. He looked a little bit swollen and red. He also noted that he smelled bleach. There was some lingering odor, and it wasn't coming from the hospital. It was coming from him. He looked down and realized that his shirt, which he'd not changed when the police came, had little dots on it. At one point, the attackers had wrapped a rope around his neck and thrown bleach on his shirt, not damaging his eyes or any open orifice, but they poured it on him. Jesse felt humiliated. He had no idea what actually had just happened to him. The biggest thing, though, is that even though he felt ashamed and disgusting and invaded, he was not weak. He repeated this multiple times in Robin Roberts' interview. He said he wanted to keep his business under wraps he was a black gay man living in chicago and he just was attacked by people who at the very least were far-right supporters he wanted people to know above anything else that he wasn't weak and he wasn't a liar now i'm going to give a very brief history lesson because i know that we all remember 2016 to 2020 but during this time, especially during 2018 and 2019, race relations were at an all-time high. Donald Trump's administration and his presidency highlighted just how much racism exists in this country. As Donald Trump put it in one of his speeches after a murder that happened, there was violence on both sides, which, as we know, isn't true. There was violence and there were people defending themselves. But something about Donald Trump's presidency, and I'm going to try to not get too political here, but it allowed people to take their masks off, which is ironic with us living in a time of COVID. But people were able to be who they truly were. Racists were able to truly be racist. However, not without rebuttal. Many times now, if attacks happen or harassment happens, people are fighting back. They were recording fights. They were outing people that were doing horrible, heinous crimes against humanity. Hate crimes were occurring, 
but they were also being held accountable. And what Justice Smollett proved was that even a celebrity can be victim to a heinous act, which is why people were enraged. I mean, you had other celebrities speaking out on behalf of Jesse immediately. The next day, on January 30th, 2019, there were stars like Viola Davis and Grace Byers and Naomi Campbell showing support. Even comedian Steve Harvey said, this is about to be the aid of another brother that has tasted the brutality of hatred and racism and bigotry. I mean, people were angry. And the thing is, this was, of course, a hate crime against Jesse. Easily. There's no disputing that. But the assailants saying MAGA country, which represented Make America Great Again, which, of course, is the slogan under Donald Trump, showed this other layer that your political beliefs were starting to be the driver of outlandish racism. I mean, there was so much talk about this. I remember when it came out being angry myself. I'm sure I even tweeted something. Everyone was talking. If it wasn't celebrities, it was coworkers, family members. There were people instantly writing blogs and columns being written, and the nation became further divided. Looking back, imagine being someone who's a Republican and a Trump supporter and isn't violent. You are now further hated because someone that you affiliate with, at least politically, committed this heinous act. And imagine being a person of color walking the city of Chicago, where usually you would assume that violent acts happen, but not to this degree, not at this much hate. And all the while, Justice Millett had been attacked and had officially become the face of stepping out against hate. I mean, there are hundreds of viral videos of racist acts, Karens being shamed. But a lot of the times, after about like 24 to 48 hours, another story pops up and you kind of lose interest in the one before. But Justice Millett was a celebrity. He was famous, and this story was making him the poster child for change. On January 31st, police interviewed Jesse again, and they asked him to hand over his phone. It was supposed to be used for evidence. Who did he call? How long was the call? But Jesse was kind of against it. He felt like, why should I give my phone over? What does that have to do with the people that attacked me? And he refused to hand over the phone. And honestly, the police were kind of understanding about it. They said that he's a victim and that they weren't going to treat him like a criminal. Jesse also felt like there were a lot of numbers in his phone. He was someone of a certain status, and he didn't want any one of those personal information to be leaked. On February 12th, Jesse spoke out for the first time in the Robin Roberts interview that I mentioned. He sat there in a black blazer and white crisp t-shirt, his low curls cut into a fade. He had a heart with the rainbow colors pinned on a lapel on his left side. And he told a story of what happened. And though I've explained this story, I'm going to let you listen to Jesse's words. While he was on the phone, I, I heard, as I was crossing the intersection, I heard Empire. And I don't answer to Empire. But they made Empire. Uh, and I didn't answer. I kept walking and then I heard Empire. So I turned around and I said, did you just say to me, I, I see the uh, attacker uh, masked. And he said, this MAGA country punches me right in the face. So I punched his ass back. And then um, we started tussling, you know, it was very icy. And we ended up tussling by the stairs. 
uh, fighting, 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 there was a second person involved who was kicking me in my back. And uh, then it just stopped. And they ran off. And I saw where they ran. And the phone was in my pocket, but it had fallen out. And it was sitting there. Jesse is blinking back tears as he continues the story and reminisces as best he can on the horrible incident that happened a couple days prior at the same time. The outpouring love that he got from his fans, members of Black Lives Matter, and his celebrity peers continued. People have signs saying justice for Jesse and Black Queer Lives Matter. Jesse said essentially that he had a new responsibility to uphold this horrible thing that happened to him, and the two people that did this need to be held accountable. Robin Roberts asked the hard questions. She wanted Jesse to explain what happened to him that night, but also address some of the holes in his story. See, in the midst of all this, there were a couple of holes. Holes that any true crime fanatic like ourselves would notice. The first is that the attack had actually happened really late. I'm talking like two in the morning. Jesse being out getting food at two in the morning just didn't really sound right. He claims that Subway is open 24 hours. That is actually news to me. Also, his phone. He explains that he doesn't know whether the fight lasted seconds or minutes, but he was on the phone with someone who could account for that. When police asked for his phone, he explained that he did not want to give physical evidence right like he didn't want to give his phone up he didn't want the phone records to like be shared although it was only going to be for three or four hours so the question is was there doubt that the police would be professional and keep the personal information that they witnessed within the investigation jesse eventually gave over his own phone records however they were limited and heavily redacted according to police who also said that they would need more information to continue the investigation. I'm going to play for you his reasoning for not handing over the phone. With it, you, because as you said, it was a, an accurate account of the timeline, valuable information. When did you make that information available to the police? Gave. We had to get the phone records. Which they didn't originally ask for my phone records. They asked for my phone. They wanted me to give my phone to the tech for three to four hours. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I have pictures and videos and numbers. My partner's number. My family's number. My classmates' number, my friends' numbers, my private emails, my private songs, my private voice emails. I don't know what that's going to be to hand over my phone for. And honestly, by then, inaccurate false statements had already been put out there. He mentions his private songs as if the police are going to leak those. It's just, I don't know, it feels off. And maybe you're listening to it and you don't get that. And I don't want to bring an unbiased opinion into this piece. But just something doesn't feel right. Jesse goes on to explain that if the attackers were Black, Muslim, that maybe the doubters would have believed that this happened to him. Jesse also clears up some rumors that had gone around. 
The first was that the assailants were wearing MAGA hats. That wasn't true, and he never said that. He also says that the, the rumors that he was going out to meet someone romantically are also false. He was just going to get food, and he's in a happy relationship. Finally, there were rumors that his attack had left him with broken ribs, and honestly, it would be assumed just by the stature of the two men that were shown. You would think more damage would have been done, but aside from a couple scratches and a bruised face, Jesse walked onto the hospital. Fine. However, people still doubted the validity of this story. And then there was just how the interview was conducted. Jesse Smollett is an actor. That is his profession, and something about that interview just kind of seemed like a performance. I want to always be unbiased, like I said, and allow you as a listener to decide for yourself, which is why the facts come first, in my opinion, and then your opinion comes. And then finally, my opinion that I feel the need to give can be taken into consideration. However, these holes were undeniable because what we're saying is that these two people corner Jesse, beat him up, and pulled bleach and a rope out of their pockets. But they didn't want to kill him. It was like the rope was around his neck to be figurative. A humiliation, not an attempt at murder. Because even though the rope left a mark, Jesse doesn't mention feeling strangled. Jesse believes that this attack was because he's been very vocal about being against President Trump and their administration. However, it would also mean that whoever did this was stalking Jesse. They would have had to corner him. You know, he'd just come back from a trip. Like he flew into Chicago that day. They'd have to make sure that they had bleach and rope on hand. This was a planned attack. And if the motive was to protect or stand up for President Trump, then this was way more than a hate crime. The president at the time did comment on Jesse Smollett's attack. He said that it was a horrible thing that shouldn't have happened. Jesse, in an interview with Robin Roberts, responded that he didn't really know what to say to that. Even as I watched the interview, all I can do is hope that this incident really took place, which is terrible to say because I would not want this to happen to anyone but it's starting to feel like it's getting much bigger than Jesse, who did not even want the police to be in the hallway when he filed the report, would have ever experienced or imagined. He explained that he just wanted the truth to come out. He wanted people to know that this happened and that it wasn't right. Ultimately, he wanted justice for what happened to him. Jesse explained that he'd been threatened before, whether it's on Twitter or Instagram, and he kind of felt like it came with the territory. He explained that he's outspoken and he stands up for what is right, and that could garner enemies. However, there was no one specifically listed that he felt, at least not publicly, would actually stalk and attack him. However, a week prior to the attack, police confirmed that a letter was sent to Fox Studios threatening Jesse Smollett. The letter kind of looked like one of those old-school ransom notes where pieces of magazine letters were cut out and stuck to a piece of paper. There was white residue at the bottom, which was supposed to mimic, I guess, like anthrax, but it was just crushed up Tylenol. 
There was also a childish drawing in red marker of a figure shooting a gun at another figure. The envelope had distorted lettering too. Like someone was writing with the opposite hand or even like a child wrote it. When asked if Jesse believed that this letter could be connected to people that attacked him, he believes yes. On the return address, the person wrote MAGA. Jesse goes on in this really tearful interview saying that he wants young gay people of color to know that it is okay to stand up for yourself and to fight back. He also wants the video footage of him fighting these two assailants to be found to show that he really was attacked outside. And that is not something that he made up. The interview is honestly a roller coaster, and I have it linked in my source material if you want to check it out. But he explains that he just wants whoever did this to be found, and he wants his name cleared because he has no reason to lie. Which was the biggest mystery, I think, of all. What would his motive be to lie? I honestly pondered and debated this with my boyfriend. As I was writing this case, I was thinking, there's something to note. Justice Smollett was famous, but outside of the show Empire, he wasn't extremely well-known. His popularity boosted by eons after the assault. He referred to himself as the gay Tupac. He became a martyr for the LGBTQ community and Black Lives Matter as someone who stands up against bigotry and racism and was almost killed for just being who he is. But above all else, in the country, new Jesse Smollett had been reborn. Everyone knew who he was, and that's got to count for something. The police were hell-bent on finding out who did this to Jesse, and the days to follow, police felt like they may have been getting closer. On February 2nd, 2019, Jesse performed at a famed Tribador nightclub in West Hollywood. He explained that he had to be there to show his love and support to those who had loved and supported him during this time. It kind of felt like he was almost on tour. He had his show and then broke his silence about 12 days later with his interview with Robin. But it is what happens between February 2nd and February 15th that is extremely crucial. On February 11th, when he submitted his phone records, there was silence. On the 14th, his infamous interview was released. And the very next day, on February 15th, an arrest is made. And it's kind of exciting because it's like, yes, finally, the people that did this are brought to justice just in time for this interview. But the two people of interest that were arrested and interviewed by police were not charged as suspects and didn't exactly fit the image that one would imagine to be the assailants behind this attack. I think it's kind of evident that it was assumed that the people that did this were white. They used the N-word derogatorily. They were strong Trump supporters, which is usually an indication of someone not of color. But the two people that were interviewed and arrested were not white. They also weren't even American. Oba bin Joe Ola, or and Abin Bola Abel Osandero, were brothers originally from Nigeria. 
they'd actually even known Jesse. See, they worked as extras on Empire, and they had also gone to the gym quite a few times with Jesse. One of them was even a trainer for him. And it showed. They both were incredibly buff men who were tall, black, moderately handsome, and young. So the question was, what did Ola and Abel have to do with this attack? Were they Trump supporters? Did they secretly hate Jesse? I mean, if they knew Jesse, it would make sense how they were able to easily stalk him. See, the brothers had actually taken a trip back to Nigeria and were gone from at least February 1st to the 15th. The police actually picked up the brothers at the O'Hare International Airport. Police had actually raided the home of Ola and Abel prior to the arrest, and that's where they seized a black mask, an empire script, a phone, receipts, a red hat, and bleach. After the arrest, people were confused, and of course, a lot of rumors started circling, including that the idea that maybe this attack was staged. These two young men happened to be conveniently out of the country right after the attack. And the question is, how are they even able to pay for these tickets to Nigeria so quickly? They weren't cheap. Also, there wasn't any evidence that they were strong Trump supporters or that they had any negative connection to Jesse. In fact, they kind of seemed like they were acquaintances, friends even. So why exactly would they plan this attack? On February 17th, the trajectory of this investigation shifted. Chicago police were pretty hush about the whole thing, saying that some developments were made for in, the, in the investigation and they'd actually released the brothers, adding that it was impossible to believe that they could have played a role in the crime against Jesse or would falsely claim Jesse's complicity. And then the most messed up video of all comes out. This is just insane. Charlie DeMar, a journalist, was able to track down a surveillance of the brothers buying supplies right before the attack. And by supplies, I mean black ski masks and other supplies that match the ones used in the attack. Is it a coincidence that these two brothers are shopping for ski masks because it's freezing in Chicago? Or were they working with Jesse to create a hoax of an attack? After the bombshell of the two men shopping on camera, there's silence. Well, from Jesse. See, everyone kind of started backtracking. I mean, celebrities that came out in support of Jesse were now changing their tune. Even Robin Roberts said that she had interviewed Jesse on a Tuesday, and by Thursday, the news had been reported of these two brothers having some sort of connection with Jesse. On February 20th, 2019, Jesse Smollett is charged with disorderly conduct and filling out a false police report. Jesse immediately gets a returning and still says that he is innocent and that he is the victim in all of this. On February 21st, 2019, he is officially arrested. At a press conference, police uh, superintendent Eddie Johnson was quoted to say that Jesse took advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career. He added that the actor was dissatisfied with his salary from Empire. Police also claimed that in their investigation, that letter that I had talked about earlier was actually one that Jesse created and sent to himself. He also paid those brothers, Abel and Ola, a check for about $3,500 to stage the attack. He was put on a bail of $100,000, but only had to pay like 
and was out the next day. And at this time, everything began to crumble. He was suspended from Empire until all of the allegations could be explained. And it seemed like a lot of confusion. See, the first thing is Jesse isn't really someone that's had issues with the law, but he has had a run-in with lying. In 2007, Jesse pleaded no contest to providing false information to law enforcement in regards to a misdemeanor case that was altered from a DUI stop. Basically, Jesse gave police a false name and signed his brother's name on a summons promising to appear in court. He eventually was sentenced to two years of probation, and it's not clear what his relationship is like with his brother that he pretended to be. But other than that, Jesse was kind of like squeaky clean. There wasn't really any other trouble he'd been in, which is why when this came out, it was a huge shock. Jesse's legal team continued to push for his innocence, despite basically everyone kind of turning on him. Even the president at the time, Donald Trump, called him racist and dangerous. But no one had exactly admitted to anything yet. See, that check that was written to the brothers was called into question. Reports even got the copy of it. It was dated for January 23rd and says, five-week nutrition workout plan. Don't go, in parentheses. Don't go was the name of a music video that Jesse Smollett was planning to shoot, and apparently the brothers were helping him get into shape. So maybe it is a coincidence. Maybe they were never paid by Jesse to do this attack. However, a statement from Gloria Schmidt, the lawyer of Ola and Abel, kind of shed some light on the brothers' involvement. She says, Ola and Abel have tremendous regret over their involvement in this situation, and they understand how it has impacted people across the nation, particularly minority communities, especially those who have been victims of hate crimes themselves. So, is that them admitting that they were involved? Now there was a new scenario. What if Jesse and these two young brothers got together and planned for this attack? The footage would show two masked figures beating up Jesse, and maybe they would never be found. The payment could have been a small check under the name of training, but could have really been for the attack. And then that coincidental trip to Nigeria maybe was to get the brothers off the scene while everything really started to blow up. This would mean that this entire attack was staged. There were no random racist evil people running around stalking Jesse Smollett. This also would make Jesse a huge liar. This is what the police believed happened. Which is the creepiest thing about this? Jesse's ability to lie. His ability to go on television, go on tours. His ability to plan out this heinous act and run with it all for fame and money and attention. It's like sociopathic. On March 13th, Empire, the show returned, and Jesse Smollett's character was supposed to appear in the remaining episodes. On March 14th, Jesse Smollett pleads not guilty to 16 counts of disorderly conduct and is due back in court um, in April of that year. By March 20th, he's speaking out about how he doesn't want this to negatively impact the show and that he is not guilty and that he and the brothers, Abel and Ola, have nothing to do with this connection of plotting and planning his attack. And that, you know, give him a break. Which it kind of seems like what happens because things kind of look up. On March 26th, Jesse is cleared of all charges. 
everything is dropped. His attorneys put out a statement pretty much saying that Jesse was vilified and that he had nothing to do with this and he was a senseless victim in all of this. But Chicago police aren't backing down. They're humiliated and pissed off and the city's mayor stands by their case that Jesse had something to do with this. Superintendent Eddie Johnson says at the end of the day, Mr. Smollett, who committed this hoax, and stood by the evidence. Things kind of quiet down, and by kind of, I mean barely. The charges were dropped. Jesse is still receiving criticism. I mean, even President Trump called this case an embarrassment to the nation. On the other hand, if this is true, if this really did happen, well, then that means there are two attackers out there. Or it means Jesse believes that Ola and Abel are responsible. The thing is, the charges are dropped, but the police and mayor still believe that Jesse is guilty of making a false statement. And so they decide to sue him. Jesse Smollett is being sued by the Chicago police for $130,000 to cover the cost of police officers, including the overtime boards on the case. And on April 12th of 2019, Jesse Smollett is literally sued by the city of Chicago. I cannot make this up. In fact, Jesse's legal team is being sued for defamation by Ola and Abel, who say that they continue to be accused of carrying out a racist and homophobic act against the actor, when they are pretty much saying that Jesse was in on it and hired them to attack him. And I want to go back to what these brothers looked like for a moment. One was literally an amateur boxer. I just kind of feel like if they really attacked him, Jesse would have had way more than just a bruised face. But I digress. On April 30th, Jesse has no plans to return to Empire. They basically write his character out. And for a month, there are the debates. People chatting over the dinner table, coworkers by the water cooler, bloggers and YouTubers pushing people to fight in the comments. And on June 24th, the police add more fuel to the fire. The noose footage is released. Taken from police officer's body cam in Jesse Smollett's apartment, it shows the actor with a rope around his neck. An officer says, do you want to take it off or anything? Smollett replies, yeah, I do. I just wanted you to see it. The footage is part of hundreds of files released by the Chicago police from their investigation into the case. And if that isn't bad enough, a video also is released to show Abel and Ola in a cab on the night the police were called. But let me get more specific. The video was taken from inside of a taxi and the brothers are on their way to meet Justice Smollett the night of the reported attack, according to Chicago police. Like, guys, I can't make this shit up. February 12, 2020, we have COVID. Everyone is wearing a mask. I mean, it's like the thick of it. Most people actually should be meeting virtually. However, six new charges are made against Jesse. He's now being charged with six counts of lying to police and is waiting for about over a year to actually see what's going to happen next. And the thing is, during this time, people have like kind of forgotten about the whole thing, which makes sense. I mean, do you remember 2020? But the trial begins on November 29th, 2021. Jesse is walking up arm in arm with his sister. His family has continued to rally behind him on the opening day of his trial. Authorities allege that Jesse paid the brothers to carry out this attack to promote his career because he was dissatisfied with his salary and empire. 
But I honestly believe it's more than that. I think as a Black actor in Hollywood, as I've talked about before, there was a chance that maybe Jesse was kind of being put in this box, that his career was at risk of dwindling. He needed a push of popularity. Special Prosecutor Dan Webb argues that a secret plan was developed to make it appear that this was a hate crime that occurred by supporters of Donald Trump. During the trial, Jesse says that the check was for a meal and workout plan from Abel. However, Abel says that they were more than just gym buddies, that he was actually involved in a sexual relationship before the alleged attack. Jesse repeatedly denied everything. He said that this was not a hoax. He said that he did not have a relationship with Abel. And as a black man in America, he doesn't trust the police and that he is being marginalized and attacked for no reason. The trial didn't last long. On December 9th, 2021, Justice Smollett is found guilty. The jury were six men and six women. The case was nationally known, so I'm not really sure how they were able to find jurors, but they did. And they found Jesse Smollett guilty of five of the six counts of disorderly conduct, meaning that at least one of them had not been proven in court. Each of these counts carried a penalty of up to three years in prison. But due to his lack of previous convictions aside from that 2007 ordeal, it looked like he probably would have a lighter sentence. On March 11th, sentencing for Jesse Smollett occurs, and he is sentenced to 30 months of probation but not before he spends 150 days in jail and pays a fine of about $145,000. Presiding Judge James Lynn did not hold back. He told Jesse that he craved attention. He wanted the attention, and he called him profoundly arrogant and selfish and narcissistic. Jesse sat still in a black mask underneath his chin with a burgundy tie and a black suit. There were no colorful buttons, no flash. His hair that once had full curls was shaved down. He looked solemn and gloom, but he maintained his innocence. In fact, Jesse James, <laughs> sorry. In fact, Judge James Lynn continued saying that this was premeditated to be extreme. He said that Jesse had destroyed his life and that he was just a charlatan pretending to be a victim of a hate crime. When Jesse finally had a chance to speak, he said, Your Honor, I respect you and I respect the jury, but I did not do this. And I am not suicidal. And if anything happens to me when I go in there, I did not do it to myself. And you all must know that. The deputies then lifted Jesse and led him from the courtroom and the final scene. Jesse Smellett yells. As he's walking out of this courtroom, he yells. I'm innocent, raising his fist, following with, I could have said I'm guilty a long time ago. Jesse had a lot of people, especially his family, go to bat for him, including his grandmother, who was 92 years old, and begged to not send her grandson to prison. The supporters of Jesse had left, also worried about him being in prison, being murdered for being gay or his Jewish heritage, or just being an alleged liar. Judge Lynn did consider the request of mercy, along with the fact that Jesse Smollett was a financial support for social justice organizations and, of course, his family. But Judge Lynn also said what I think a lot of people were thinking, that Jesse Smollett kind of came off as a narcissist and that he was astounded by his actions. He said, the damage you've done to yourself was beyond anything that could happen to you from me, and added, you are now permanently a convicted felon. The sentencing 
is subject to appeal and most likely will be, there's a strong chance that Jesse won't be in jail for 150 days. Most times, celebrity privilege allows people to cut their sentencing down. In fact, I'm pretty sure he's out now. How do I know? Because he dropped a rap song recently. It's called Thank You God. It's about six minutes long, and it's like this gospel R&B meets rap rendition. It's streaming on all platforms. In the song, Jesse is continuing to claim his innocence. He says, It's like they're hell-bent on not solving the crime, taking out elements of race and trans and homophobia, that's straight taking lives, but turn around and act like I'm the one that killed the strides. The song has less than 5,000 listens the day after it was launched, and apparently any profits will be donated to the Rainbow Push Coalition. His lawyers plan to argue that the trial was unconstitutional, but for now, I guess we wait. Maybe it's best that all that attention is pushed somewhere else and Jesse is out of the spotlight. Because regardless, one stain you cannot get off is one of a liar. Whether Jesse ends up doing full time or not, his integrity will remain behind bars forever. And as he said in his new singles, I can't be mad, take my ego out, some people searching for fame, some people chasing the clout. Just remember this, this ain't that situation. You think I'm stupid enough? to kill my reputation. Thank you so much for joining me this week. This was a long one. I think this was my longest episode yet. I am now going to leave you with a true crime fact. The last, I think, two episodes that I had, they were just like so heavy that I was like, I'm not going to add one in. But of course, this time, this week, I'm totally adding one in. Oh, my fact for the dinner table or date night or wherever you choose to share this is that best evidence policy is a thing. Forensic laboratory policy that allows some items to not be examined based on the results of other testing or due to other factors such as the manner of collection, degradation, or limitations of the science. The more you know. As always, like, comment, definitely subscribe. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a little different than my normal. I'm so excited for whatever I come up with next week. And as always, check out my website, IvanaEstel.com. That is where the Let Me Humble You blog, which is a lot lighter and a lot more fun, <clears throat> is on there, as well as my cited sources and... um other true crime cases that I've covered before I have turned into this podcast. You can see the interview. I'll have that up there. I'll also have uh, just a couple other sources that were really, really helpful to keep up with this entire story this week. Follow me on Instagram at Ivana Estelle. That's with one end. And also on TikTok and my official true crime Instagram, which is at Ivana Estelle True Crime. As always, safe journey. Keep walking in the light. Until next time, Ivana Estelle.